Welcome to Entrust Engage, an open forum for the most innovative leaders in security technology. I'm Samantha Maybe, and I'm your host. Today, we're still looking at quantum computing and post-quantum. We'll be discussing quantum computers themselves, post-quantum cryptography, and then some takeaways on what organizations should be doing to prepare. I'm pleased to introduce the two guests who are joining me in this conversation today. First off, we have Dr. Michaela Mosca, who is a mathematician at the University of Waterloo, co-founder of the Institute for Quantum Computing, and founder and CEO of Evolution Q. And also joining today is my colleague, Mike Ownsworth, software security architect at Entrust. So to get started, I figure we should probably talk about quantum computers, which are essentially the catalyst of all of this. And Michaela, I believe the work you do um, has been involved in building and researching quantum computers. So I'd love to get a bit of an overview from you on some of the progress that you're making there and some of the findings that you've come across. Right. So quantum computers, they're about harnessing sort of the quantum framework for physics, which is a very profound thing to harness. It's, it's almost like 100 years ago or more when we we understood electromagnetism, right? And when you harness that, you get you know, ICT and all, all the wonderful technologies that have driven much of the last, um, all the you know, economic and social developments of the last hundred years. So, and we're harnessing something actually even more fundamental than electromagnetism. So what are gonna be the impacts? You know, even harder to predict than hundred <laughs> years ago, predicting what wireless communication and other many other uh, impacts of, of, of understanding electromagnetism, you know, would imply. But we're getting there now. Like 100 years ago, we, we started to understand that there was this new framework, uh, which was exponentially richer. And in the last few decades, we can now build technologies, right? Mm -hmm. What are they good for? We didn't know 20 years ago. We started to get a taste of what they're good for in the mid 90s and that's roughly when i joined the field when peter shore showed there's this exponential advantage for solving certain problems uh like discrete logarithms and almost exponential for factoring large numbers right so there's potentially this exponential power lurking within quantum physics if we could build technology that fully harnesses it for at least one problem there's uh and maybe more there's this exponential reduction in the amount of resources you need to solve it. So it's not like it's a flat, faster clock speed. It's just, you know, you need exponentially fewer steps. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about as many steps to use RSA than to break it, right? So you can't just go to larger keys, for example. And I, I got on into it back then, understanding what else can it do? In the last 20 years, the, the field of quantum algorithmics, so at the top of the stack, like, has, has matured tremendously. Uh, and now, now that there's companies out there uh, trying to commercialize this computing power, much of it's still to emerge, but we have the first prototypes. We're getting a, a better understanding, still early days of which, you know, useful applications quantum computers might be good for. One of the main focuses of my work is what are the tools you, you need to compile those algorithms to run unavailable hardware or eventually available hardware? and do resource estimation and to help understand, you know, is this a million quantum bit problem or a thousand quantum bit problem? Mm -hmm. And how much will it take to solve it? So I'm, I'm working a lot on that as are many other people around the world. 
And there's tens of billions of dollars being spent on building the computing platforms. So something that's really been evolving in the last five years, especially is more system level research and development and commercialization. There's a whole commercial ecosystem now that is now really bridging the hardware to end users mm-hmm. for early days, right? Um, but we now kind of have an integrated stack and we're really just continually enhancing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a very exciting time for the field. Yeah, it would be for sure. So yeah, you're mentioning, again, we're talking about the building and evolution of sort of quantum computers. And uh, of course, one of the things that we're looking at is, um, you know, the quantum computer that's going to break cryptography as we know it. And, you know, we've addressed that sort of threat timeline. And there's a sort of general consensus out there that it's roughly a decade away. And you're famous, too, for the prediction that quantum computers would break modern RSA with a one in seven chance by 2026, 50-50 chance by 2031. I'm not going to ask you to live here or make a new prediction or anything. Um, but what I'm curious about is just, you know, you said it's difficult to predict things like this, the advancements of the technology. Um why is it so difficult and what sort of research advancements are you looking for when you make a prediction like this? Yeah, yeah great question. Uh, yeah, you know, prediction is hard, especially about the future. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and I think, you know, I was watching a Jamie Dimon interview recently and he's saying like, I don't know how the war in the Ukraine is going to play out. It could get better. It could get worse. It could stay the same. I have to be ready for all three of those possibilities. Yeah. And similarly, the name of the game isn't to guess a year and put all your marbles, you know, put all your chips on that number. Uh, that would be foolish. Like we had kind of have, we need a plan, prioritize and properly resource plan for all those potential outcomes. So the right question is, what is the likelihood? Does Mike want to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to make the point, you know, we're, we're cryptographers. We, when you say how secure is this data, you know, an answer of one over two to the 128 this is a, you know, comfortable probability that my data is going to get broken. When you say one over two, 10 years from now, like that's, <laughs> as a cryptographer, that's a terrifyingly large probability, right? So, you know, I don't think we should assume 10 years. I think we should, there's a small chance it's less than five years mm-hmm. in our recent, so I have my own predictions and I'll explain a bit about how I come up with that, but don't want to just rely on my views. We've interviewed 45 of the world's thought leaders, the people whose opinions I care about, who understand very, very viscerally and deeply all the different challenges that I'm aware of. And I kind of take those all into account in making my predictions. But I went to the sources and asked them point blank, what do you think is a chance of break? If you had to estimate the likelihood of, of breaking RSA 2048, Mm-hmm. years, what is it? What about 10 years? What about 15 years? And if you kind of average, you know, and we gave them a range, right? And if yeah. you took the low end of the range and average it, you get about 2%. And if you take the high end of the ranges and average it, you get about 9%. So, you know, you, you can post-process that data differently if you want. If you want to discard most optimistic half, go for it, do whatever you like. But we're talking about a few percent. Mm-hmm. And like Mike said, if you're responsible for a critical infrastructure uh, that is not just protecting information, but OT and, and safety and lives, that's an unacceptable risk. You already need a plan now 
for that mm -hmm. in less than five years. Uh, and by 10 years, if you look at those numbers, it's already into the low 20s and even low 30s percentage likelihood within 10 years. So clearly you need a plan to be ready in 10 years. And if it ends up being 15, great, uh, mm -hmm. but you certainly can't say, oh, I'm going to let it ride. You know, I'm going to you know, I'm going to go with the other 75 percent uh, because with something that critical, you have to be ready for all the different scenarios. Now, of course, you can track and pivot a bit depending on how things unfold, but we don't have a time machine where you can go back and make up the lost time. So yeah. our threat timeline report kind of gives you a risk profile. You have to come in with your risk tolerance, your risk appetite. Mm -hmm. and decide what year am I going to plan for now? Might yeah. I shift it later in either direction? Yes, of course. Uh, but again, you can't make up lost time. Nothing really bad is going to happen if you're a bit early. Uh, <laughs> things could happen if, if you're late. Uh, again, what goes into predictions for me? It, it's really, uh, I mean, this is an oversimplified uh, thing, but like we kind of know roughly how to do it. And one of the most important milestones is integrating all these pieces like actually we have almost all the pieces working the hard part is getting all these pieces working at the same time in the same system right mm -hmm. and not blowing up basically because <clears throat> when you try to do all these things in the same system at the same time they all start interfering with each other and so how close are we to really implementing this fault tolerant error correction that we all in theory know how to do and we've implemented more and more of the pieces We've implemented more and more of the pieces at the same time, and we're getting closer. This is, again, simplified, but roughly speaking, when do we reach that point where they're kind of all working together now, and the main focus is on scaling it, right? And again, scaling it with a belief, a plot, you know, a justified belief that it's, it's, it's gonna scale just fine, right? Um, when is that going to happen? What rate of scaling do I anticipate? And lastly, how how big of a computer will I need? Because mm -hmm. we know it's sufficient today, but many of us, including my team, is working on reducing the number of quantum bits you need to break RSA. So the, the, the requirements keep going down, the availability keeps going up. When do those two curves cross over? So mm -hmm. I kind of look at different scenarios for both of these two things, and I, you know, look at all the different, you know, it's it's exponentially many uh, paths in a sense, and I compute probabilities for them and I add them up and that gives me uh, my estimates. But yeah. in my estimates are roughly the middle third if you go and interview these 45 thought leaders. Sure, okay. You have something to add, Mike? Yeah, you yeah. mentioned you mentioned that so the, the engineers and the physicists are working on building it on the robustness, the fault tolerance and the scale and the the alg algorithmists are working on, you know, better algorithms using using the hardware more efficiently, fewer resources and those those curves cross. We don't hear a lot about the algorithmic advances. Like I don't see don't seem those don't seem to get as much press. Um, you know, we all know about Shores and Grovers. Are there other fundamental algorithms that are being developed or that are on the horizon? So uh, definitely there are. Are they relevant to factoring? Not yet. There's been, mostly they've been tweaks uh, on Shor's algorithm. There's one thing actually I did with um, Dan Bernstein and Jean-Francois Bias 
which is we showed you can actually boost the number field SIP with a quantum computer mm -hmm. with asymptotically only ended the two thirds qubit. Sorry to get into the answer, <laughs> but you need on the order of n qubits, uh, like roughly two n qubits to, to factor an n bit number. We showed that with only n to the two thirds, which is a lot less than n qubits, but it's big O n to the two thirds, which is hiding a lot of uh, complexity in practice. You can actually speed up the number field SIP, right? So asymptotically, anyway, you can get a, a, a huge speed up over the number field SIV um, way before uh, Shor's algorithm can be implemented. Um, it doesn't keep me up at night because I think the big O will, will, will not make it practical for N equals 2000, but it does say, let's not assume. So in other words, it's a really good question you're asking. There's no fundamental reason why you need 4,000 logical qubits to break RSA. That said, We've optimized it. There's lots of, you know, it's it's not uh, glamorous research, uh, but there are ways of optimizing the implementation of Shor's algorithm. Uh, and some are algorithmic improvements, but a lot of it is below the hood of how do I compile it to run on a fault-tolerant system? And there's further optimizations on, are there better error-correcting codes that need fewer physical qubits? And when you're constantly tracking, we've been constantly tracking this year after year, what are all the improvements in compilation fault tolerance? And that helps reduce the overall uh, resource count for implementing Shor's algorithm. None of it is glamorous, and that's why you don't see it in nature or on the news. But those of us who are tracking it, that, that's what we're tracking. And we are seeing just a gradual, occasionally there's little you know, drop, like step function downward. Uh, but for the most part, it's a gradual decline. But we're obviously aware that there could be you know, a non-trivial step downward uh, with a really modest uh, advance in algorithmics. I mean, I'm working actively on something non-modest, uh, as are others. Uh, but this is high-risk stuff. You wouldn't give it to a master's student or a PhD student because uh, it's, it's, it's you know, lowish probability of success and high impact stuff, but we have to be ready for that too. Very cool. So one of the things I want to move the conversation to is uh, post-quantum cryptography. So again, knowing that uh, quantum computers are going to break or sunset cryptography as we know it, like RSA, um, just sort of looking at what NIST is doing. As far as I understand, everyone's looking at NIST to set the standards. Um, I'm wondering, and, and maybe Mike, you can jump in here as well, is just providing a quick overview of the NIST competition and what exactly they are doing there. I can I can take take a first shot at this. My view is, so I'm a software engineer. I'm building systems that use cryptography. I'm, my day job doesn't involve building the cryptography itself, but using it. For example, PKI is an infrastructure that uses a lot of digital signatures to build trust networks. And so we need those mathematical primitives, the digital signatures, to be strong and robust and available so that we can build PKIs around them, for example. The NIST competition is looking at defining the next generation of mathematical primitives. Mm -hmm. We've had RSA, elliptic curve, since the 70s 80s they've you know they're mature they're robust they're everywhere what's the next 30 or 40 years of mathematical cryptography going to look like 
from from my perspective, that's the role that NIST is filling, and it's a it's largely a collection of mathematicians and academics proposing, you know, these really low level structures. And then and then there's sort of a whole halo of engineers like me who are watching the NIST competition with bated breath. How do we use it? How is it different? Is it how does it compare to RSA and elliptic curve? Is it bigger? Is it slower? Does it? Can you use it in the same places? Do we have to adjust our software to accommodate it in different ways? How much do we trust it? Are we expecting CVEs and vulnerabilities and buffer overflows? And how new is it? And how tested is it? And you know, all these. How do we make it more robust and fast and integrable and interoperable and and that's sort of not directly part of the NIST competition. I think NIST has intentionally not weighed into those sorts of spaces, but mm -hmm. I mean, there is this whole community of people surrounding the NIST competition trying to figure out how to use it. Okay, yeah, it kind of leads into one of the questions that I had where when NIST is done, and I guess it's not going to be NIST, but you know, it's going to probably be a bit like the Wild West where we see, you know, I don't know if it's going to be uh, other standard bodies, vendors, organization, every, everybody's going to try to move really quickly after that. So one issue I see, you know, who's going to be reining it in? Is it going to be governments or non-government standard bodies? Just thinking about all the software vendors being on the same page. How do we ensure what organizations are doing or implementing that they do work together or are compatible? Yeah, uh, good point. Because, I mean, NIST has a long tradition of sort of an open process, so because people have to trust uh, uh, the selection, uh, so they, they, they're trying to be as transparent as they can and engaging the brightest cryptographers around the world. But then you're not done, right? And the, these standards feed into other standards, right? Uh, and there's layers of standards, like the X9 people in the banking community are working, or they're already anticipating this and preparing. Mm -hmm. uh, Etsy's been anticipating and preparing uh, all the standards and pre-standards work around the algorithmic choice because there's so much more beyond the algorithm. Doesn't like you know NIST doesn't declare a new algorithm and then just magically you know everything's fixed. It takes years and years and years. We've been doing a lot of proselytizing and outreach for a decade or more now, so there are many pockets of the ecosystem that have been anticipating. They've been using open source platforms like Open Quantum Safe to do a lot of their testing and prototyping. The team at Entrust has been doing really great work anticipating and, and you know, engaging with the community um, to look at how we're going to do certificates and so on in practice. Uh, so a lot of this work where, again, you can't, you don't get to hit the pause button and mm -hmm. say, you know, oh, great, now wait, you know, stop building a quantum computer uh, while we figure out how to, uh, to, to use the NIST standard. So there's been a lot of preparatory work that said there's still a lot more to do um mm -hmm. so who's coordinating it all <laughs> it, uh, there is no of course um overall coordination it, it, it there never has been but mm -hmm. there is there are pockets of leadership around the world obviously nist has been doing great work etsy has there's a lot of corporate leadership like mm -hmm. in trust and others um the white house has been issuing yeah. series of directives and I, I you know they're pretty nice like they're, they're light touch they're they're kind of sending a signal without being too heavy-handed and prescriptive but it sends a signal 
that makes it clear like you need to get ready if you're not ready already you need to soon and they're giving people enough time to get ready because we mm -hmm. don't what we don't want is this gets managed as a crisis because then we'll make things worse than they already are um so it is a bit of chaos we're trying to manage it's it's but that's how it's been all along in a sense because the quantum threat has been so peculiar and that we knew about it in 1994 usually you don't hear about zero days 30 years before they happen right um you usually find out about it after you've been hacked you know or someone else has been hacked so we have actually more than ever before got had so many years to prepare yes we procrastinated most of that time but not all of it so mm -hmm. I'm, on the positive side i'm hopeful as you know while we're still unprepared in many ways we're probably more prepared than we've ever been for um this sort of crypto migrate this massive crypto uh, migration um but um we've been over you know we started the etsy iqc workshop uh mm -hmm. 2013 and nist was part of the, the founding team of that they were part of the first program committee they came to france for the first meeting mm -hmm. so it's been we've been really bringing in all the the entire ecosystem as they join the ecosystem together uh, up until the pandemic we physically met every year to discuss what have we achieved in the last 12 months what do we need to do in the next 12 months mm -hmm. and so we've been as much as possible trying to coordinate the ecosystem and you know build the community of people who often didn't know each other in advance but knew know they have to work together uh, to eventually affect this migration so there is informal uh, coordination, I would say, and more and more standards bodies are engaging and referencing each other's work. Yeah, that's yeah. very much uh, ecosystem is very much the word I figured you might bring up because, you know, digital security today, it is very much about the ecosystem. And, you know, why would that change, you know, moving forward? So that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, so, yeah, moving on a little bit to, again, post-quantum cryptography. Um, Mike, I don't know if perhaps, you know, laying a foundation for our listeners just so that we're clear exactly what digital certificates are and why quantum computers are a threat. Yeah, that's a, that's a question I can do. Digital certificates. Um, most people encounter them in your browser, that little green padlock in the in the top bar. That's that tells you which website you're talking to with cryptographic strength. Mm -hmm. There's entities in, on the internet called certification authorities, and they certify that you are, to simplify a bit, you are the website that you claim to be. You're connecting to entrust.com, and a certification authority has said, yes, this is the legitimate entrust.com, and that trickles down into displaying a nice green padlock in your browser. And that all rests on top of a type of cryptography called a digital signature. The certification authority has signed that attestation statement at runtime when your browser and the website talk to each other. The website is going to use that certificate to sign your session to, to authenticate that that session is from the legitimate server. And you can sort of, they call it a, a, a trust hierarchy. You can roll that trust relationship all the way back up to the certification authority and see that, yes, everything checks out. The cryptography is valid at every step. And that is, as we've mentioned here, all based on a type of cryptography, RSA or elliptic curve, 
which mm. is known to be susceptible to Shor's algorithm. So this is one of these zero days, 30 years in the making that Michele referenced. <laughs> uh, we'll need to migrate. How does it migrate? What are the implications of migrating it? Mm -hmm. here. So with that, I'd love to talk about some of the work that you're doing on composite and hybrid certificates and what are they and why are they considered quantum safe? I guess the that really gets at the question of do we, so we know we don't fully trust the, the existing stuff, the RSAs and elliptic curves. We know for now it's fine. At some point it's not going to be fine. When is it not going to be fine? We don't know. Okay. What about the new stuff? All the stuff in the NIST competition, the the, the Sphinx Plus, the M, XMSS, Dilithium, Falcon, Rainbow. Uh, the community got a bit of a shock earlier this year. We're in round three of the NIST competition. One of the finalists for the signature schemes, Rainbow, got critically broken. We're, you know, that's that's pretty that's pretty shocking. We're late in the cycle for a for a break that big to come out. So, what else is lurking? you know, below the surface that hasn't been discovered yet. So we don't, from from my perspective as a practitioner, do we, you know, do we have that two to the 128 guarantee that if we pick the NIST finalist, our data will still be secure in 2050? You know, given that rainbow revelation, maybe there's, maybe not. Maybe the other algorithms have similar, you know, discoveries waiting to be found. So we don't trust the current stuff. We're not sure that we trust the new stuff either, which in some ways makes this post-crypto migration unique. I don't think we've ever had a crypto migration like this where we're not sure we trust either the old or the new. You know, just so how do you bridge? And the answer, the answer I think is actually in, I mean, NIST outlined it right from the beginning, what they're calling hybrid and dual modes. Mm -hmm. Take the old stuff, take the new stuff, layer it together layer it together in such a way that an attacker would have to break both. Or if you're using more than two algorithms, break three, break four. You have to break all of them together at the same time to break the to break the data security. Mm. And we're and that, you know, it's not a that's not a silver bullet necessarily. You can imagine everything fails, but you know, the chances that everything fails all at once, there's zero days against everything in a very short time, but that's, that's starting to be a safely low probability. So that, so any sort of hybrid system would at least give you time to migrate off in the event of a break. So on that bed, uh, Ntrust has really been championing, and I'm not going to say, choose my language carefully, because as Michele said, we're trying to lead the community. We're trying to really strongly build consensus. We're working through the Internet Engineering Task Force, the IETF standards body, which is a very open and public standards body. And so we're the primary author, but really we see ourselves more as, a, as an editor. We're trying to collect all the community feedback, all of our the other vendors in the space, our competitors, our other software vendors we have to interop with. And how do we design a certificate that takes this, this hybrid concept or this composite concept and layers multiple signatures together so you get a PKI, a trust hierarchy that's on two or more algorithms in this layered, secure fashion? Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That makes a lot of sense. And like you said, it's uh, that it does feel late for a break. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's a constantly moving space. And 
I don't want to get all gloom and doom, but I do have a question where, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, quantum computers, we've mentioned Shor's algorithm, we've mentioned Grover's algorithm. Um, so what's the likelihood that there are other mathematical algorithms or search algorithms still to be discovered that can harness the power of a quantum computer, adding further challenges to classical crypto as we know it? Like is the, com the quantum computer we're planning for the quantum computer we're going to get? Um, well, we'll definitely get what we know. And <laughs> almost certainly, there's almost certainly going to be new powerful quantum algorithms. Mm -hmm. and, and also, remember, uh, these post-quantum algorithms, you can also attack them with classical computers. So overall, the question is, what's the likelihood that these new algorithms will break, you know, the post-quantum schemes? Mm -hmm. You know, Rainbow was probably the one, if we had to bet, that was probably the one we were most nervous about. Uh, and of course, there's different flavors of breaking. One option is, oh, just go to a bigger key, which is not a great consolation prize for the person who just lost all their confidential data or had their, you know, you know, their power plant blown up or their car driven off a bridge, you know. So, but it's, but at least, you know, there's different types of breaking. Mm -hmm. uh, and some is, you know, some are, I need a month of the world's most powerful supercomputers to get one key. Others are, I need 10 seconds or a millisecond or whatever to get. So there's different degrees of how bad the break is. So that 10, I mean, I think there's at least a 10% chance that these NIST algorithms, at least one of the main ones will be broken in less than a decade, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. That's ten, but I mean, how broken? Well, it'll be a spectrum of if you break up that ten percent, some of it'll be like you need a supercomputer uh, with a quantum computer running for you know a month. Others will be no, actually, you could do it on your laptop, right? Mm -hmm. and, and like the the example Mike mentioned, that was on a laptop, like that was an easy uh, break. That one could be patched by going to bigger key for now, right? But um, so what, what do you do about this, right? Because we're not mm -hmm. going to get it down to one, you know, two to the minus 128. I think it's 10%. And you could argue, you know, it's 20 or it's five. I've heard people argue both. Uh, well, one thing you can do is the kind of, you know, dual and hybrid stuff that Mike was mentioning, <clears throat> bring it, put in a few extra layers. It won't bring the probability down to zero because you could have a shore-like event, which really breaks more than one scheme. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is to really let's take this 30 plus year head start we got and make things design things because we had to manage this as a crisis you could forget about hybrid forget about agility like it'd be a panic rush and we'd slap on some band-aids and then say no, don't move it don't touch it because it'll it'll break uh, but now we've had time so we can design things to be more agile have some of these dual and hybrid type approaches that helps mitigate the risk. So at least if it is broken, we can we can update it relatively quickly versus some catastrophe where like we oh great we're ten years away from fixing it. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody stop using the internet for ten years while while we fix this. You know that that's obviously not an option. Uh, and other things we can do. So I'm a big believer in post quantum crypto. I mean that's why I got into quantum algorithmics 26 years ago, uh, and I think it's going to be a beautiful first layer of defense and mm -hmm. and it doesn't need quantum technology obviously we complain that it's not as efficient as ecc but, but at least 
it just uses classical tech. I think Mike wants to jump in. And you know, a couple a couple points back. We're to keep perspective here. You and I are sitting here as cryptographers. We're you know yeah. really concerned about the security implications of this migration. There's lots to be said about the migrate migratability implications yeah. here. How quickly can you move? I mean, saying that the technology exists is one thing, but how easy is it to replace hardware? How easy is it to patch software? I mean, you think of you think of things like ATMs. They're you know they're out in the world, possibly in places that are hard to send a service tech to. You might not have over the air patching capabilities. Like you know, you may have to wait until that physical hardware is replaced to be able to make it speak post quantum. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the other aspect I think to all this yep. hybrid dual composite stuff is also trying to design how do you make it so that you can have heterogeneous environments where some of your components speak post-quantum, some of your components don't, you're getting the extra security benefit where you can, but everything sort of still works in the meantime. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a great point, because a lot of the people, you know, building a quantum computer is hard. And they're like, this is over 10 years away, maybe even 20. I'm like, I know, and we're at least 10 to 20 years away uh, from migrating, right? Because I think it's largely been two distinct communities. The security world who understands very well how non-trivial it is to change from one algorithm to another and do it without messing up something important. And then the quantum community understands how hard it is to build a quantum computer. Mm -hmm. I've been by fluke in both communities for over a quarter century. So I've been trying to translate and say, look, we really need to get the, the migration show on the road because I know while there's still some important milestones to, to be achieved for building a, a cryptographically relevant quantum computer, we still have to do a lot of hard work to be secure against them. Um, but back to the, you know, what I was saying about, so post-quantum crypto is a beautiful and essential first layer of defense because you can really put on any endpoint with modest, uh, you know, computational performance, mm -hmm. maybe not an RFID or something really low performance, but for most endpoints today, it's, it's beautiful and, you know, you know, but, but the risk is it could be broken. Uh, so we, we, for certain, for critical platforms, we do need a plan for that. And again, hybrid helps mitigate it, but what we, we still have time and we need to think about what do we do uh, to deal with the, the systemic chance, you know, the, the risk of these new algorithms being broken. And that's where, you know, more and more people are looking at things like quantum cryptography, which can't be mathematically cryptanalyzed. How can we add that as an additional layer of defense for some of the more critical platforms? Fantastic. So we've gotten into it a little bit, but I mean, one of the things that you stress, Michele, is that the time to prepare is now. That's something that we very much echo um, with our customers and anything that we say around this space. Um, so I'd just love to get from you, you know, some of the takeaways um, with, you know, I understand you've worked with banks and governments on helping them prepare. Um, for our listeners, what are some of the things that they should be thinking about or doing to create that sort of readiness plan or migration plan? Yeah, I mean, we've come a long way in the last 25 years. 25 years ago, the question I get is, can I put this off till retirement? And then if you now start analyzing the threat timeline, the, the shelf life of your information, this migration timeline, you realize I already better have started planning, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of the challenge has been you know, 10 years ago, even even five years ago, if you did, if you logically realized I need to do something, you'd quickly realize you didn't know where to start, right? There's no reliable open source platforms for, for testing things. Uh, so few others in the ecosystem are engaging and there's only so much I can do on my own. And then that was, a, you know, that was usually enough inertia to not do anything. But that has changed, right? The main players around the world are working on this. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing you can do is you can search for the Canadian Forum for Digital Infrastructure Resilience, uh, Quantum Safe Best Practices, right? And you can see there an example. Uh, I mean, we compiled best practices from all around the world and battle tested them with our, our banking friends, the Bank of Canada and other big Canadian banks. And, and so you can already sort of see what the, we broke it up into six stages uh, to get quantum you know, ready, mm-hmm. in the sense of secure against quantum attacks. The first three phases are really preparation and assessment. The last three phases are mitigation, migration, validation. And so you don't need to do this on your own. There's so much you can share. You, you know, in most cases, don't worry, you're not going to be first anymore, right? Uh, now, in some sectors, you might be first, but then there's so many others that it can that it will share best practices. So you kind of know what you need to do, which mm-hmm. is a great starting point, because otherwise you're like, what do I do and how do I know I'm doing the right thing? How do I get resources to do this? That road has been has, has sort of been laid out now. Uh, and you can basically go through the stages of understanding, doing your risk and vulnerability assessment, then starting your engaging your vendor ecosystem. Because basically, once you do your assessment, you realize, you know, I really need to have this system secured by 2030. You work backwards, you realize there's no way I can do that, or it's going to be really hard, but I'm going to try my best without panicking and making things worse. And you start to realize your dependencies. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, most of that is being taken care of. So you can kind of focus on the parts that are not being taken care of. Which standards does your industry need, right? Uh, which regulators do you have to sort of anticipate here and steer in a direction so it'll be smart regulation and not, you know, heavy-handed prescriptive regulation that makes things worse, right? Um, so there's a lot of, you can zero in on that little bit that really does require proactive action. You can start doing your proofs of concepts, your pilots. You can start understanding your supply chain dependencies. Know which of your vendors, like roughly speaking, if you're using cloud apps and and some in-house tools, mm-hmm. talk to your cloud providers to, to make sure things are on track there. Uh, talk to your app providers to make sure things are on track there. And you have to do a little more work to fix your own in-house systems. Uh, you have to do a bit of training to make sure the right people in your own team are ready to do what they need to do. There's a bit of coordination that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. So there's still work to be done. Uh, but there's a lot of best practices being shared out there. So you can sort of do it with minimal. You can do it with the minimal necessary work, but you do have to do the work. And the sooner you start, the more it can be. Like the real objective for us here is let's make this part of technology lifecycle management and mm-hmm. really make it a non-event, right? There is no crisis, Yeah. right? By the time we have cryptographically relevant quantum computers, it'd be like, oh, well, yeah, we've already essentially taking care of that or you know we we flip a switch we do that update that we were preparing for 
and it's really a non-event and we can just focus on all the other things we really should be focusing on. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's going to take time, but we have time as long as, you know, organizations are thinking about it and talking about it and planning for it now, right? So, fantastic. Yeah, I think to directors, you know, from the top all the way down, let's assure ourselves mm-hmm. it's got to be, there's got to be KPIs tied to this, that this will be managed by lifecycle management, not crisis management. Mm-hmm. And this has to be tracked, you know, at least twice a year. Uh, to make sure that's happening. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, I think uh, I think that's a promising note <laughs> to to sort of conclude on here. Um, again, just there's lots of organizations can be doing. Um, you know, making it a non-event. I love the way that you position that. Um, you know, again, if you prepare and you you look at this now, so. With that, um, I think we will we'll call it there. And I would like to thank you so much, both of you, for your time, Mike and Michele. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out to sort of have this conversation with me today. Thank you. Thanks. This was a fun chat. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's it for today's podcast and concludes our six-episode series on the topic of quantum computing and post-quantum. Keep up with episodes by following us on LinkedIn, Twitter, using the links in the episode description. Thanks for listening to Untrust Engage. Engage.